In early 2020, the world was plunged into the start of a pandemic that has affected every aspect of our lives. We've come to realise how vulnerable we are to viruses and just how important science and the study of immunology is. And it's not over yet. Today, we'll talk with one researcher who's doing her part to end the pandemic. Hi, I'm Mara Jean Tilley, and this is Medical Minds, the podcast of the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. In this series, we're diving deep into the minds of our amazing researchers to find out how they tick and how they are working to make our lives better. With me here is Dr. Deborah Burnett, group leader and immunology researcher at Garvin. Welcome, Deborah. Hi, Mara Jean. Thank you so much for having me here today. Deborah, you're working in an incredibly important space, COVID vaccinations, but not just any vaccine, a universal vaccine. Can you tell us about that? Ever since the, the pandemic emerged, we've been waiting for the emergence of a vaccine. And we've been really lucky because there have been some vaccines now released and they've been great. They've, they've allowed us to return to some level of normality and they are very effective at reducing the risk of severe disease. But unfortunately, there's really a critical flaw with the current vaccines. And that's that although they're very good at reducing your risk of severe disease, they're not able to prevent infection. So what that means is people are still able to get infected, they're still able to transmit the virus, and the virus is then able to mutate into new variants. And we've seen this at the moment with the XBB 1.5, the Kraken variant, and we're likely to continue seeing this. And the protection that we're able to get against these newer variants is much less than the protection that we have against the original strains. So what this means is we have to continue behaving reactively and updating the vaccine with the latest variants. But obviously, this approach is quite flawed because it's going to always lag behind which variants are actually in circulation. So our team has really taken a different approach to trying to end the pandemic. We're trying to make a vaccine which does two things. Firstly, it blocks people from actually getting infected. So you're not just going to have a reduced risk of severe disease. You're actually not going to be able to be infected and transmit the virus at all. But the second thing we're trying to do is we're trying to make a vaccine that doesn't just protect you well from the current variant, but it also protects you from all future variants, even those that haven't even emerged yet. What precisely is so different about a universal vaccine? So as we've learned more about the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus causing COVID-19, we've started to realise that it actually has some really tricky features which are why it's so difficult to make a vaccine that can protect you against all variants. And so one of these features is that when you either get infected with the virus or you are given the vaccine, the vast majority of the antibodies you make, which are what protects you from infection, are unfortunately targeting a part of the virus that the virus is actually really easily to, to mutate and change. And so what this means is that when a new variant emerges, this site is different. And so the existing immune protection and the existing antibodies you have won't protect you well against this new variant. 
So our vaccine is going to be a bit different in that we're trying to make your immune system target regions of the virus that the virus can't easily mutate. And so these regions are probably critical for the virus's function. And so it can't mutate these regions and still remain an effective virus. So if you had antibodies against these regions, they would protect you not just from the current variant, but any variant that could emerge in the future. So with the universal vaccine, will we still need to have booster shots? So there's two factors which determine whether or not we need a booster. The first of these is uh, whether your current antibodies can protect you against these new variants. And so we're really hoping that our vaccine will overcome this issue, that you're going to have antibodies that protect you from the new variants and so you won't need to get an updated booster shot. But the other factor is how long your antibody protection lasts. And so what we've seen in the current vaccines is that this is also an issue, that the antibody protection wanes over time. And it's a really interesting thing we're seeing, and we don't really understand why that's happening yet. And it's entirely possible that that's actually a feature used by the virus, because we see even in the animal kingdom, when we look at other coronaviruses, that the antibody protection that both humans get or that animals get, it does wane over time. And this really differs from the antibody protection that you get against some different viruses. So we're not sure that our booster would actually be able to give you longer antibody protection because we don't yet understand why this waning of antibody protection occurs. But it is something else that we are investigating and we're hoping that we can also soon find the answer to that and then work that into our vaccine strategy as well. And what's the timeline on this universal vaccine being available? So at the moment, we're at the preclinical testing phase with our vaccine. So what that means is we've got some really exciting vaccine candidates and we're testing it at the moment in preclinical models. The next phase after this would be actual clinical testing, so testing our vaccine for safety and efficacy in human volunteers. And so we're hoping that this would happen before the end of this year. But if that all goes well, the next step is actually the largest scale clinical testing and upscaling manufacture. So we're hoping that with any luck, if all goes well, our vaccine could be available in 2024. We're regularly hearing about new variants of the virus emerging. How many more variants do you think we are going to see? Yeah, so, so the reason that we're getting new variants and more and as time goes by is as different people become infected, there's always this opportunity for the virus to mutate within those people into a new variant. And so the reason that we might be seeing more variants emerging now than what we saw at the start of the pandemic is actually there's a lot more COVID circulating all across the globe. And so at the moment, as the current vaccines we have aren't very effective at preventing people from getting infected, there's still this enormous burden of infections across the globe, even if it might be less severe. So it's actually quite expected that at the moment we would be seeing an increased development of new variants over time. And so what we know is actually looking at related viruses in the family, including actually the SARS-CoV-1 virus. So that's the virus that caused the original SARS epidemic in 2003, that there's actually still 
quite a, a wide scope that the virus can continue to mutate. So it's entirely possible that we will continue to see quite a few more variants. And what motivates a virus to mutate? So I love, I love that thought process, what motivates a virus to mutate? Because I kind of think the same way. Obviously, viruses don't have any motivation, but what a virus wants, so to speak, is to continue spreading. So there's an evolutionary advantage to a virus that can infect more people. So what motivates a virus to mutate is actually the ability to evade the current protection that we have. So if a virus can change a site that your current antibodies target, then it will gain those mutations because that virus will have an advantage. So every time any person is infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, there's the potential for that virus to acquire mutations which allow it to potentially evolve into a new variant. And so the reason that we might be seeing more variants emerging now than we did earlier in the pandemic is that there's actually a lot more transmission of the virus happening now than there was in the early days. So what we're seeing now, we've got lots of vaccination, but the vaccination is predominantly effective at reducing disease severity. So now a lot of people are actually infected with the virus and have very mild symptoms or are asymptomatic, but it's still possible that in those people they acquire mutations, allowing for the development of new variants. What is it that makes it so hard to create a universal vaccine? I guess the, the reason that it's so hard is that the virus really has so many tricks up its sleeve, so to speak. So the virus has so many different opportunities to do something to evade immune protection. There's such a strong evolutionary pressure for the virus to do something which allows it to transmit and infect more people. So we really, you know, there's only a few of us. And so compared to millions or even billions of copies of the virus. And so it makes it really challenging for us to overcome these clever evolutionary strategies. And what are some of the tips and tricks that the virus uses to evade immunity? Yeah, so it really depends on the virus. So what we've seen in the case of the SARS-CoV-2 virus is that one of the tricks it has is that certain regions of the spike protein, which is the, the part of the virus that actually infects human cells, certain regions appear to be dominant to the immune system. But unfortunately, these are the same regions that the virus is really able to rapidly mutate. So if the majority of your immune protection targets these particular regions, it'll only result in antibodies that the virus can evade over time by mutating into new variants. But with different viruses, we actually see, or even uh, other threats, for example, bacteria or parasites, we see different strategies that they use to evade the immune response. So something that actually a lot of different threats to our immune system use is they actually try to hide from the immune system by mimicking our own self-proteins. And so this is a very common thing that a lot of viruses do. And so, for example, the HIV virus does this, and that's been one of the reasons it's been so difficult to make a vaccine against HIV. But what's incredible is that even though these threats are very clever, so is our immune system. So actually, what we found is that for some threats, the immune system is actually able to make antibodies which are able to target the threat 
even if they really closely mimic our own proteins. One of these actually is Campylobacter jejuni. So this is actually a bacteria, not a virus. And in the vast majority of people, if they're infected with Campylobacter jejuni, they just get a mild and transient, so short-lived diarrhea. But unfortunately, in a very small proportion of the population, their immune system does get confused. And instead of making antibodies which target the bacterial protein, they instead make antibodies which target your own nerve cells. And they develop this very debilitating autoimmune disease called Guillain-Barré syndrome. So this is actually another thing that we're researching. We're trying to understand why it is that in some situations, your immune system is, is so amazing and it is able to target these threats that so closely mimic our own tissues, but why in some people their immune system gets confused and they develop autoimmune disease. Deborah, when the virus first emerged, there was such a rush to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. Is there still that urgency, not just with your team, but with other researchers around the world? Yeah, absolutely. And it's been a really fascinating time to be an immunologist working on vaccines because it's been totally different to the regular research we do where normally you're working on an area and you're quite isolated in that. There are definitely other teams working on vaccines, but I think we actually see it in a much more collaborative sense. We actually share the information with these other teams before we even publish our papers and they share it with us. I think we're all working on the strategy that actually there's a lot of scope for everyone to understand more and the information that we produce and that they produce can actually help one another. So I've never been involved in science in a situation where it's as collaborative where it is now. So the work we're doing on this vaccine is really in collaboration with a huge number of teams across New South Wales, across Australia, and even across the world. And how confident are you that your vaccine strategy will work? I'm a scientist, and I think the thing about going into any question in science is always be open to the possibility that you can be wrong. So I'm really hopeful that we can do this, and the results we've seen so far are really promising. But I want to say that at every step of the process, we're looking to prove ourselves wrong. We need to see that our vaccine is actually better than the current vaccines on the market and that it has an exceptional safety profile. And so until that we actually see that, I won't know for sure. How susceptible are we to the emergence of new viruses? There are a lot of factors in the world at the moment that might mean that actually the next pandemic might be sooner than we think. So due to factors like climate change, we're now seeing that humans have actually expanded into new areas and animal populations have expanded into these areas as well. And so we're seeing novel human and animal interactions. We're also seeing an increased density of population in many areas. And of course, there's the factor that we're in an unprecedented era of global connectiveness. So together what this means is actually there really is more of a risk for new pandemics to emerge in the future. And so we have to take the COVID-19 pandemic as a learning experience. We know from this that we need to have the capacity to rapidly develop and test vaccines against new pathogens. And so that's really also what we're developing. We're not just making a COVID-19 vaccine, but we're making strategies to develop and assess new vaccines 
against any threats that the world throws at us. Deborah, what made you choose immunology to specialise in? And how did you first get into this area of research? Yes, I actually came into this world from, from quite a different path to most of my peers. So I originally trained as a veterinarian. I was working as a veterinarian for a few years. And there are a lot of aspects about that job that I loved. But really, I found it quite frustrating that there were these regimented treatment regimes that we tried. And sometimes they worked and sometimes we didn't. And we never knew why. And so I really went home at night and I continued to sort of muse over these problems, the questions that we just didn't know how to answer. And that made me realize that I actually wanted to be one of these people answering these questions. And so that's what made me realize I wanted to do a PhD. So I came into the garden and I met Chris Goodnow, who was my supervisor, and he really talked to me about his passion for immunology and for the immune system. And I realized it fit perfectly with mine. It really came down to understanding the immune system and how elegant and beautiful it was as a process and really using this knowledge to actually even further refine this incredibly elegant and beautiful process and to actually allow it to even overcome those threats that the immune system wasn't capable of tackling on its own. And do you miss being a vet? I do miss some aspects of being a vet, but I do still get a lot of those enjoyable parts. There are other parts of my life now. So I'm now a, a wildlife rehabilitator through WISE. And so the work I do for this is actually mostly uh, raising orphaned possums and actually rehabilitating them for release. So they're, they're really cute, but actually it's really important that what we do is we try not to handle them too much because the point being that actually these possums, we just look after them at this time when they've lost their mother and we help raise them up until they're independent and then they can be released and live full lives as wild possums. I've got three different cages for different sizes of possums. So when they're really little, they have to be fed uh, three. Well, I only do them at the stage where they're three feeds a day or less. As they get a bit bigger, we start to introduce them to green. So I have to go around getting, getting wild plants that I can feed them to sort of train them to understand what feeds they should be having in the wild. And so then they're in my outdoor cages when they get a bit bigger. So I've got two outdoor cages, a smaller one and a bigger one. And so the, I've actually at the moment got five possums at home. And so they're actually getting close to the, to the point of release. So I'm actually at the process now of actually weaning them off milk so they learn to live only on native greens and then hopefully soon they can be released. And so I still get to do the aspects of vet I enjoyed, which is helping animals and caring for them. But now I'm really much more stimulated in my professional career and that's really what I wanted. How much has science communication played a role in your work? Since I've been working on COVID-19 and since I've been working on vaccines, I realised that actually science communication is really important when you're doing medical research because it's really important not just to do science but actually convey what we're doing to the public to really get around this problem of misinformation that exists in today's society. So people really need to understand that why we're doing this and what safety protocols are in place that we do before anything would be introduced to the public. You're still quite early in your career and an obvious rising star. 
What are some of the challenges you face so far working in science? So I love science and I love the freedom that we have. I love the excitement of making new discoveries. But really, there are still some problems inherent in the field. And there are some ideas that I think are changing over time, but we're still not quite there as scientists. So one of these is this real myth in the field that to be a good scientist, you need to complete part of your training overseas. And that, that's great for a lot of young scientists, but that doesn't work for all of us in every life situation. And I think that idea used to be really important in the past when the world was a lot less connected. But I think now there's a lot of other ways that we can still gain experience and collaborate with different teams around the world. We still collaborate a lot with actually quite a few overseas teams. We meet them at conferences. We go over there and actually I've sat, done some sabbaticals with overseas team, learning techniques and bringing these techniques back to Australia. But I think now we're sort of reaching the point that I don't feel that this idea that every scientist needs to spend several years overseas to complete their training is actually an essential part of the field. Deborah, before we let you get back to the lab, we're going to ask you the fast five. What do you do to relax? Yeah, so I do a lot of walking, often hikes, and I like to paint. What music do you like? I actually, I love 90s pop. I'm a big fan of the 90s. And do you have a favourite artist from the 90s? Oh, I can't go past the Spice Girls. Apart from the possums you care for, do you have any pets? So I've got two beautiful cats. They're called Falou, which is French for a naughty boy. And the other cat is actually called McFarlane Burnett. So that's the name of a famous Australian immunologist. And where was your last holiday? So my last holiday was actually down the New South Wales and Victorian South Coast, down to Gippsland for the first time. And the highlight for me was actually going to Raymond Island, which is this amazing island where there's a huge number of koalas. So we're really lucky we got to actually see seven koalas when we walked around the island. You have such a strong connection to animals. Are there any you don't like? I do, very embarrassingly. I have a phobia of grasshoppers. I don't know why, and I can know they're completely harmless, but I'm terrified of them. Dr. Deborah Burnett, thank you so much for taking the time to share your work and life with us. Thank you for having me. It's been so great to be here and to talk about my science. If you'd like to know more about Dr. Deborah Burnett's research or the work of the Garvin, head to garvin.org.au. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with other podcast lovers. I'm Mara Jean Tilley. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on the traditional country of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past, present and emerging.